Welcome to our very first edition of Competition Cafe, a podcast focused on hot topics and antitrust that you can listen to on a short coffee break. My name is Jen Roach, and I'm a partner at Thompson Hine LLP in Cleveland. Joining me is my co-host, Matt Ridings, also a partner at Thompson Hine and a certified compliance and ethics professional. We're really excited to bring you a series of short discussions on developing trends in antitrust enforcement and litigation to keep you informed. If there are topics you'd like to hear more about, please shoot us an email. Thanks, Jen. Our topic today focuses on DOJ and FTC's changing position on merger review. Here with us today are Thompson Heim partners, Josh Shapiro and Mark Butchin. Their practices focus on guiding clients to the regulatory review of mergers and acquisitions, from deal inception and risk assessment to clearance by the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice. Mark, there's been a lot of news coming out of the FTC in the last several months about how the agency is going to approach merger review differently. What have been some of the developments with respect to the merger review waiting period? Thanks, Jen. There really certainly have been a lot of developments recently with respect to merger review coming out of the U.S. agencies, the FTC and the DOJ. And first, to put some of this in context, I think we need to provide just a a brief high-level overview of U.S. merger review. And in the U.S., merger review means the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act, or HSR. And under the HSR Act, a transaction requires a a filing with the FTC and DOJ if the deal exceeds a certain threshold, which changes every year, but is currently $101 million. There are exemptions that, that, that may apply, but in general, that's the rule. And once an HSR filing is made, the parties cannot close the deal until they wait 30 days from the date of filing. During that 30-day period, the FTC or DOJ may extend the waiting period by requesting additional information, uh, including by issuing what's called a second request, which is a very detailed uh, mechanism of discovery about the deal and and indicates it's gonna be a very long investigation of the deal. Uh, that includes a lot of document requests, interrogatories, and could involve interviews and the like. One thing that that some parties could rely on in the past was what is called early termination. In early termination, the FTC would allow the waiting period to, the 30-day waiting period to expire early, sometimes as early as 10 days or 15 days after filing, in deals where there was no competitive overlap. One of the things that has to be submitted with an HSR filing is revenue data that shows each of the parties' respective revenues in certain industry codes. And if there's no overlap, many of those deals in the past would have been granted early termination by the FTC. In fact, almost 50% of all filings resulted in early termination before February of 2021. Those announcements are public um, and ordinarily an HSR filing is not public. So that's one thing for for companies to consider when they're considering early termination. But since February of 2021, it hasn't mattered because the FTC suspended the early termination program in February of 2021, citing the ongoing COVID pandemic, as well as the high volume of merger filings and the transition from one administration to another. At the time, the FTC indicated that this suspension of the early termination would be temporary and brief. 
the the dissenting commissioners at the time uh, were skeptical of that claim and insisted that this was likely to be indefinite. And indeed, that has been the case. And there's no sign of the early termination program returning at this point. Well, Mark, tell me about warning letters. What are those and has the process um, with respect to those types of communications changed at all? The warning letters are a, a new development from the FTC uh, that, that does not reflect a, a change in the actual substantive law, but it does reflect a change in the enforcement policy, uh, perhaps, and in the risk associated with certain deals. The FTC began issuing what they call, referred to as warning letters to parties for whom they had opened an investigation of a merger, but not closed it before the waiting period expired. Ordinarily, what that would have meant would be that the FTC or DOJ would issue a formal second request and, and thereby commence a, a formal lengthy investigation. But a warning letter really just says close at your own risk more or less to the parties. Now the reason that doesn't reflect any change in the substantive law is that the FTC and DOJ under current law are permitted to challenge deals after closing. The, the fact that the waiting period has expired does not eliminate their jurisdiction to investigate a deal uh, and to determine that it could be anti-competitive um, after the deal is already closed. So it's unclear at this point whether the issuance of a warning letter will actually increase the risk to parties that they could have a post-closing investigation that might affect the deal, uh, but uh, it could affect the negotiations on the front end of the deal with respect to risk shifting provisions and closing conditions in merger agreements. Mark, let's shift gears for a minute and talk about blog posts. The FTC had a blog post about informal interpretations that injected some uncertainty into the m &A equation as well. What's the status on the FTC's guidance of these interpretations now? Well, Matt, so these interpretations are a, effectively a, a body of informal, uh, non-binding kind of common law about HSR regulations. HSR regulations are very complex with various exemptions from reportability and they are subject to potentially different interpretations. <clears throat> On an anonymous basis, parties may request an informal interpretation from the pre-merger notification office of the FTC about whether the specific facts of their deal, uh, which are provided on an anonymous basis, would be reportable under the HSR Act. Informal interpretations are very helpful to parties and the HSR bar to help determine whether fact patterns that fall within sort of um, in between regulations or that are not exactly clear based on the regulations themselves, whether they're reportable, help to guide them about whether to advise clients to file or not. In, in August of 2021, the FTC reversed course as it does from time to time about specific interpretations, reversed course on one specific interpretation relating to the treatment of debt in the calculation of the value of a deal for HSR purposes. Before that time, the FTC had issued interpretations that indicated debt paid off by a buyer at closing would not be part of the value of the deal for HSR purposes. And why that was important was if the threshold, for example, which is now $101 million, if a, if a deal was valued at $105 million, but $10 million of debt was paid off at closing, the deal would actually fall below the threshold and would not require a filing. That changed in August 2021 as the FTC decided 
that the treatment of debt would be actually included in the deal value. In the process of making that announcement, the FTC called the overall practice of informal interpretations into question by indicating that all interpretations were being reviewed to ensure they comport with what the FTC called modern market realities. There have been no additional announcements from the FTC about the status of informal interpretations. And for now, the pre-merger notification office is still responding to inquiries, although I can tell you from uh, experience with one, the, the response that we got was uh, cursory. So uh, it remains to be seen what the FTC will do with these informal interpretations, but it's something that we are certainly keeping a close eye on. Josh, Mark's walked through a lot of the different FTC announcements about uh, different interpretations and some of the actions that they've taken. Uh, what is the impact going to be on clients who have to make HSR filings? Yeah, thanks, Jen. I think, you know, first and foremost, it adds quite a bit of uncertainty. You know, as Mark alluded to uh, a moment ago, antitrust attorneys have really been relying on uh, the pre-merger notification office and formal interpretations, you know, for many years. And, and we made critical calls for our clients or, or guided our clients into making critical calls regarding HSR reportability. Um, but now the P&O um, has essentially called all their prior interpretations into question. So going forward, what does this mean? I think you're going to see more HSR filings. So if you know if I'm uh, a client and and we have a deal uh, that presents no substantive issues, but there is some uncertainty about whether we need to file, whether we've exceeded the threshold, or whether there's some interpretation perhaps uh, on the treatment of debt or some other thing that could take us under the threshold, um, the safer bet may in some cases just be to file HSR. Um, you know, the consequences for getting it wrong can be pretty severe. Um, uh, you know, these are civil consequences, but they're, but they're um, pretty significant monetary um, penalties um, if you were, were, should have filed but didn't. Um, now, on issues of the warning letters, and, and Mark uh, also referenced this, you know, um, you know it, it definitely, we're, what we're going to see is, is a change in how parties approach this during the uh, negotiation of the merger agreements. We're already starting to see parties insert language in merger agreements to account for the uncertainty uh, that could arise if uh, if the parties received a warning letter during the 30-day waiting period, and how, um, if at all, that would impact you know um, the buyer's uh, uh, obligation to close, whether they close over the warning letter or whether they whether they leave time um, to see how the warning letter plays out. Uh, these are all issues that are going to sort of we're going to start seeing the market um, shift towards. Uh, dealing with, because um, this is a reality. Parties are receiving these letters, and I think going forward, we're, we're just going to have to deal with them. And, and I think what you're probably going to see is sellers demanding that buyers close over these warning letters, unless there's some uh, uh, appreciable reason why they why they shouldn't do so. Well, Josh, in terms of changing of interpretation, we know that FTC and DOJ have sought public comment on its horizontal review horizontal merger review guidelines that were published in 2010. And so do you have any insights on what changes may be coming to the more formal guidance from FTC and DOJ? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, um, what we should expect is the revised merger guidelines will look beyond the traditional focus of merger enforcement, which are sort of 
uh, price effects and really price effects on consumers and, and look at other areas of competition and how mergers affect competition in other areas. Um, the request um, for public comment, if you read it, it focused uh, quite a bit on labor markets and non-price effects, meaning sort of things like innovation. Um, uh, for We also can expect um, quite a bit of scrutiny, I believe, on digital markets and consideration of how uh, a digital market and perhaps other markets like digital markets um, should differ, uh, uh, whether the guidelines should differ for those markets. Um, you know, in particular, um, the, you know, one, one thing I think we'll see is uh, addressing how enforcers should assess two-sided markets you know, such as when a platform serves both advertisers and consumers. Um, the agencies have been pretty um, candid in, in their view, um, at least recently, uh, that they, they, they do not believe that the guidelines appropriately address those markets because uh, businesses may can use their network effects, you know, to concentrate market power and foreclose competition, even though on the consumer side, uh, prices either appear low or perhaps uh, they receive products free in return. So um, I think we're gonna start seeing uh, additional scrutiny in, into those markets as well. Thanks, Josh. We've talked a lot about the FTC here. Are there any other developments out of DOJ that parties contemplating deals should be aware of? Uh, yeah, I think certainly DOJ is for the most part following in lockstep with the FTC you know, towards more enforcement. Um, they've jointly asked for comments um, on the new merger guidelines. This was a request not, not just from the FTC, but also DOJ. Um, you know, also DOJ has announced that it may bring lawsuits to seek to reconsider old precedents. Um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a concern, the new um, uh, Assistant Attorney General for the uh, Antitrust Division, uh, Jonathan Cantor, said that settlements do not move the law forward. Um, and I think there's a perception that the DOJ should, it's sort of in Jonathan Cantor's view, take risks. I think that you're going to see more um, civil enforcement, more, more lawsuits. Um, also, DOJ, you know, has renewed interest and focus on, on deal with monopolies, again, both in deals to sort of, um, uh, you know, what we see and, you know, how, how mergers, you know, tend to create monopolies. Um, and also, they've even raised the specter of criminal prosecutions using, you know, sort of Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which traditionally has really been reserved for civil enforcement, perhaps um, in a criminal um, uh, criminal element, which, you know, again, that would be somewhat unprecedented, but um, uh, there's there's nothing in legally to say they couldn't do that, but we'll, we'll see how that develops. Mark and Josh, thanks very much for your time with us today. It seems like there is a lot of change on the horizon for uh, antitrust law and DOJ and FTC, and we'll be interested to hear from you as some of these changes uh, come into fruition. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us, and thank you for listening to the Competition Cafe. We'll see you next time.